Dave Max Cork History Matters, brought to you by Red FM. Colin Kenny, thank you for joining me for this Cork History Matters podcast chat and uh, well, for getting in touch with me about the book that you've just released called A Bitter Winter, The Irish Civil War 1922-1923. Not the first book that you've written over the years, uh, mostly on history, but, but there's a range in there. Yeah, and thank you very much for uh, inviting me on. It's great to talk about this. Yes, this is a kind of a companion uh, book to the book on the treaty that I wrote last year. They're both short, they're 128 pages, and they're both intended to be succinct and fair and to give a, a you know, a, a good overview of what happened, uh, while at the same time, maybe opening people's eyes to some things they didn't realise were going on at the time. Mm. It's uh, I've you know conducted a number of history podcast chats with uh, a number of people amongst them Gabriel Doherty of UCC and uh, you know we've charted through you know I mean suppose this decade of commemorations but from you know from from 1916 all the way through to this period and it's the one period that becomes a little bit of a quagmire and it's really hard to sort of navigate and negotiate your way through what happened where and when and I have to say that in in a very clear and concise fashion that's exactly what this book does. Um, I had hoped to reread the preview because I found that interesting. You know, do you have a particular um, sort of take on this? Uh, f- you know, f- from the out, like I suppose, you know, you're sort of saying that people can't sit on the fence when it comes to the Irish Civil War in terms of whether it was a justified campaign or, or not. Is is that is that the take of this book? I think that's a fair statement, and I, but I want to say that I come at this without any baggage in terms of the Civil War parties. I, I don't have any affinity with either Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael, uh, although my parents, one was one way and the other was the other. My mother was an admirer of Dev and my father tended towards Common and Gael. Uh, I, I don't want to come down on either side in that sense, nor do I want to be condemnatory. But I do, as you say in the preface, make it clear that I disagree with the government's approach to this in this decade of centenaries, that it's kind of mm. whatever you're having yourself, almost mm. said it was a kind of a football match. Well, if mm. you support, you know, Cork, that's one thing. And if you support Kerry, that's another. I don't see it that way. Catherine Martin, mm. our Minister for Culture, um, said a few months ago that official initiatives to remember the Civil War would invite everyone to consider the painful legacies of our past and reach their own conclusions. And she said, the state will not seek to communicate a preferred narrative or make judgments about any persons or actions. I think you have to make judgments. I mean, I think it's pretty clear when all is said and done. On one side, you had a, a new state uh, on the basis of a majority of the cabinet, a majority of Doyle Aaron, and about 80% of the voters in the general election in 1922 who voted for candidates who supported the new state. And on the other side, you had an armed group who disagreed and wanted to overthrow it by violence. And I don't think that, you know, you can understand it any other way. And and once you realise that, it changes how we understand the history of the IRA and the history of the struggle for freedom. You know, something important happens at that point. It's not the same struggle as 1916 and 1918. It's not the same IRA after 1921-22. Uh, and maybe we've forgotten that. Maybe we don't realise that. You, you'd really wonder when you see what happened in Glasgow, for example, with the Irish women's soccer team, and leaving, leaving aside the youthful exuberance and all of that, you just have to think, if people really understood what happened, 
you know, I don't think that could have occurred the way it did. And, you know, it's not all history, as somebody said, isn't all in the past. Mm. We live history. Absolutely. And this is repercussions for right now, both in terms of things like the Northern Ireland Protocol and also the efforts to have a vote on the future of Ireland and what happens if that vote is carried and are we going to try and force unionists into a United Ireland? So, yes, you're right. I do take the point of view. I think we've got to wake up and see what really went on. The I guess the main contention of um, well the irregulars as they came to be known although I don't think they liked that but those who rejected the treaty at the time was that this isn't what we had fought for and also that the decision uh, with all of the uh, you know the eighty percent vote and the and the doll having voted for it by a by a clear majority as well was a was a decision made with the gun put to the head and it wasn't a, a fair and a free decision and it wasn't the one that really people wanted of course there's the old you know it was a step towards what we're looking for and uh, and I think some of your contention, too, is that in creating the disturbance that occurred through the Civil War and in the years that followed and the bitterness, it took the focus off what could otherwise have been an effort at changing the landscape there and then. And in fact, took out some of the main you know, individuals who could have perhaps charted a different course, who knew the British, who knew how to negotiate with them, who could potentially have discussed that boundary commission uh, in a different manner and in a different form and, and we might not have ended up with the country we ended up with uh, as a result that it took the focus off things oh absolutely I mean there's a lot there so let's unpack that what you say a little bit at a time yes it did terrible damage two, two main ways one the country was extremely badly damaged roads railways blown up in a poor country that had very little resources to begin with. It was massive emigration at the time. People wanted to get on with building a new state, a new economy, to take advantage of all, the, all of the economic opportunities that Griffith had talked about for years. They wanted to do that. And the Civil War caused immense financial and economic damage. But as you say, it also caused damage to the whole notion of the Boundary Commission. Collins and Griffith were convinced, and they were the ones closely involved, that Tyrone and Fermanagh were going to become part of the new state. It would have been a 28 county state, and in fact, parts of Northern Ireland around Derry and Newry as well. That was Armagh, yeah. You know, they were dead by the time. And could it have been a viable state if it had ended up that small? Well, you see, this was part of their reasoning too, and it wasn't an unreasonable proposition. But the Civil War uh, um, meant that that wasn't going to happen the way that they had hoped. Um, I, I actually have an old Irish saying at the very front of the book, mm. the war of friends is their enemy's opportunity. And this was precisely what this was. It ruined the chances. And it also saw the two people, if you like, in the provisional government of the new state who were most committed if you like, to the, the idea of um, an all-Ireland state, Griffith and Collins, they were gone, they were dead. So it was a double whammy. Mm. Now, you talk about the argument that, um, you know, the decision somehow was forced. Well, of course it was. That was the problem. We had Britain here for 800 years. Everybody knew Britain had gone to our head. Uh, they were all Republicans. They all, everybody would have, all the nationalists in Ireland would have loved a 32 county free state. But, you know, you're talking about real politics. And when people go to the polls, they vote on the basis of real politics. I mean, we can all vote for one for a thousand euro a day extra for everybody. We can vote for unrealistic things. But what people have to do when they go to the polls and what they do do is they try and pick what they think is the most, uh, the, the least worst option. And this is what they did in 1922 when people, by a majority of four out of five voters virtually in 1922, voted either for 
pro-treaty Sinn Féin candidates are from the Labour Party, the Farmers Party, the Business Party are independents, all of whom said, look, we'll accept the treaty, make the most of it, and it's a stepping stone towards something else, which in fact it became. And the irony was, of course, another irony, that the person who brought it forward, perhaps most of all in the end, was De Valera when he came back into the Doyle. He made use of it to actually achieve a greater freedom. Mm. Although, of course, it did sort of copper fasten a division on the island that, well, I mean, it hadn't existed geographically before, but you could argue it, it existed in terms of outlook towards, you know, national sentiment uh, between, you know, the most easy way to describe it as unionists and nationalists. You know, that border is now a real thing. I'm, but, 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 I'm, that border, Jay, wasn't invented by the treaty. I mean, people forget that. That border was created in 1920 by the Government of Ireland Act. And that's another thing. When you, talk, when you hear people chat about these things in pubs, there's this thing you hear again and again that somehow the treaty created partition. Partition was there when they went to London. Well, that's some of what I'd like to get to because I think that's what's interesting and what there often isn't that much of a focus on is where unionism were in all of this and even where the British were in all of this because the ir irony of it all, of, you know, home rule is Rome rule, you know, Ulster says no, the covenant signed in blood, landing guns, this, this was done by unionism to defend the union. Um, and presumably to defend, you know, uh, um, an Ireland that was indivisible in their eyes within the union. And they they said no to home rule, would have no truck with it and were the first to get it. Mm. It's, you know, the irony of all ironies. And and that that um, agreement was made by between the British and the unionists without influence from anyone else prior to any of the rest of what occurred. You know, this was sort of like ahead of us chatting with the guys who were up in arms let's ensure that we've sorted things out so that you guys will be safe and protected. And in, in many respects, you can see why, and, and it's understandable. But like you said, that, that border, that, that home rule for the Northern state was created before any discussions were had with, with nationalists in the South. You know, in a way it was almost a fait accompli and what was to happen after that? Once you've created something, it's very hard to uncreate it. Um, so it's just interesting in all of that followed, uh, treaty negotiations and, and, and everything else, uh, and, and even the civil war then itself, it's like, you know, the British have a responsibility for the creation of the northern state and all that that has meant since then. It's why they, can, they, they can't wash their hands of it. Um, and, and there is a bit of still, I feel, a silence around where the unionists' mindset were at in that time and what the British thought or wanted. Or, and I, I know you make a point in your book of how, you know, they had so much going on there. The government's changed in between. It was post-World War I, um, you know. Irish politics is, is an element of, of British mm. politics, but just one small element and is played in different ways at different times. So I know I've said an awful lot here and it's probably, you know, there's no need to unpack all of it. But I, I did think whilst reading through the book all of about like, you know, we turned so into ourselves and fought with one another, ripped up our own country. I mean, the mentality that, that you know, drove. So by the way, I also don't see a great logic for a civil war. What, what could, anybody possibly have thought they were going to achieve what did they think they could achieve by taking up arms against their very own state it, I, I i would ask that of gabriel doherty you know the battle for dublin you know they took and the similarities in a way to almost 1916 as well where there's a taking over of a thing to to to, to send a symbol and you know so the battle for dublin they're cleared out there's a line drawn from to waterford to limerick you know we defend the south but to what end was a question i had what could possibly the strategy have been? Hmm. I, I presume you know more than anybody else have an answer to that necessarily. What could anybody who fought the civil war against the treaty have thought they could possibly achieve? 
Well, I don't think there was one view on that. You see, this is the thing. There wasn't one solid cohort that was, again, the treaty. There were a number of different perspectives. There were some people who, I suppose, were strategically hoping that by taking up arms, they would get a better deal from the British, if you like, that we might have been able to force in the 26 counties, uh, you know, uh, some kind of republic status so that we mightn't have had to take the same kind of oath of allegiance. But there were also a lot of people who thought if you just fought on, you'd get more and keep fighting. And they didn't really take account of the fact that the IRA was very short of arms and ammunition, that there was a massively armed group in the north of Ireland who were highly trained, having served in the First World War in the British Army. Uh, and, you know, had they tried to move against that, not only would the northern loyalists, well-armed, have come south and perhaps occupied Dublin, but the British Army was never going to leave them on their own. And it wasn't simply out of some sense of loyalty to Northern Ireland. It was as much, and again, you're quite right, the things that we don't think about in Britain. Um, three very important things. One was they were already obsessed with an unemployment crisis in Britain. They had a massive economic crisis. And it was a coalition government. And the minority party was led by the person who was the prime minister. Uh, Lloyd George was not a Tory. And this was quite an unstable situation. I mean, if you think of an Irish government, they say Labour and Fianna Fáil, supposing the Taoiseach was from the Labour Party and it, was, and it was a time of national crisis. You can imagine there'd be an awful lot of people in Fianna Fáil who were deeply unhappy. And that was the case in Britain, where an awful lot of Tories hated Lloyd George and wanted to get rid of him. Uh, but also the other major factor was the empire, which we intend to forget. The empire was deeply felt and liked both by the uh, moneyed classes, but also by the ordinary classes. And it was supported in Canada and in other English speaking, if you like, colonies of Britain and Australia. They didn't want to see the empire end. They were very committed to it. So these were unionists and the English unionists in the Tory party, a bit like the the, the Tory party today, the people who support the protocol, it wasn't that they had a great love of Ireland or even of Ulster. They had their own reasons, their own agenda for being British Unionists, just as the British Tories today have their own agenda for being, again, the protocol. And it has to do with their views on Brexit rather than to do with Ireland. So these are massive factors. And the British would never have let the civil war proceed without having sent the army back into action, by which stage they were freed up and recovered from the First World War. And the chances of us having gone anywhere with a, with, a, with a successful, if you like, civil war by the irregulars, had they, had they defeated the free state, they were highly unlikely ever to be able to capture the island. And most people knew this. This is people didn't want to return to the misery. They had three or four years of misery. They didn't want more of that. So they were voting for Ten. the Ten. I mean, you, you know, the world was in, in, in uproar for a good decade. I mean, you know, what, the irony, again, when I started these conversations in 2020 with Gabriel Doherty of UCC, uh, we were in a pandemic, as they were back then. They'd been through the First World War, uh, the war, the, the Easter Rising, uh, um, Spanish flu, um, yeah. the War of Independence. It's an incredible period in our history. People must have been almost at their wits end and desperate for any kind of resolution and any kind of peace from which they can rebuild from. Yeah, houses were going abroad, I mean, all the time. I mean, the, the emigration was just continuing. This was one of the big motivations for Arthur Griffith was always, I mean, right back from the time he started with his newspaper, the United Irishman, so on around 1900, he was very conscious of the fact that Ireland was you're losing so many people. Ireland 
from after the Great Famine, the population continued to drop right up till 1961. It's incredible. Mm. Um, you know, and, and during the period you're talking about, thousands of people were voting with their feet. They were gone. They were gone to Britain. They were gone to America. Uh, and, you know, this this was the reality that was driving people to say, for God's sake, we've got a pretty good deal here. It gives us a great ability to get on with things. We haven't got everything we wanted, but let's take what we have and go forward. And that's why four out of five people voted for candidates who support. Uh, and to, to jump in a little bit into some of what's in the book, uh, you know, I find De Valera, a, a, I'm... I'm a McCardle, um, so I must read Dorothy McCardle's book, which Gabriel mm. assures me, whilst De Valera never wrote an official biography, if there's anything that, you know, is the dev line on things, it's the Dorothy McCardle book for which he wrote a preview. And um, uh, well, as a McCardle, I was quite, I was like, oh, that's uh, interesting. And I can't believe I've never read her book and, and, and I will. Um, but De Valera, I mean, it's very hard to figure out where or what he's, he's says uh, multiple things that are contradictory all over the place. However, one of the things I just want to pick on uh, amongst many is his, uh, I think you wrote in the book that it was, you know, was it an unprinted um, doll exchange uh, in relation to the to the North and, and how we might engage with the Unionists and how no war against the Unionists was ever likely to achieve uh, any of, of uh, Irish nationalists' aims. Um, and that negotiation and, and, and conversation discussion was required. Do you recall that? This was uh, an astonishing speech, which is really not known. And yes, John Bowman talks about it, and he's one of the few people who's really addressed it properly in his book on Devonair and the Ulster question. What happened? It was in 1921, before they even went to London uh, in August. He was in the Doyle, and they would sometimes have private sessions behind closed doors, which was a strange thing by our standards. Um, and so, at the time, they wouldn't have got they wouldn't have got covered. Um, but he rises up in the doyle and he says uh, in August, he says, look, you, you know, um, if, the nor if northern counties, and remember Northern Ireland already existed, the six counties at this stage, the British had created, he said, I, I think any county in Northern Ireland should have the right to vote itself out of an Irish Republic. Um, and he said, some people in here would like to force their hand, he said, but if we do that, we'll be guilty of what we've accused the British of for a long time. So I'm not in favour of force, even if it could work in this context. Now, that's, people find it hard to believe De Valera said that, given what was to follow. But it's there now in the record, because it's all available. And it's all online, by the way, the toy record, which is terrific now. You can look at it and read it yourself. And he's there saying it in black and white. Um, but because it didn't get reported at the time, it's, it's almost, I, I had difficulty believing it when I read it first. You know, I had to kind of do a double take. And then John Bowman said something. And, and, and I, I, I think he's right. I would agree with that uh, take. Oh, I think so. Um, and, you know, well, he, I mean, as you say, he says so many things. Mm. It's very hard to know <laughs> what he's thinking. Uh, um, and at, that, at that time, because it, it, I also was unaware, which is probably not unknown, but I, I hadn't known that he had had upwards on four uh, private meetings with Lloyd George prior to the treaty negotiations. Because, you know, the big question is always why Dev wasn't there for those negotiations. And, you know, you know, on one level, there were plenty of potentiaries with the ability to sign. On another level, he seems to have stocked it with a couple of people who were there to row back anyone that might sign up. To, you know, it's so contradictory and confusing and l lacking in clarity, where on one level, there are plenty of potentiaries with the ability to sign. On another level he's put people in to make sure that they don't sign anything um, but but is it fair to say that the evidence we have 
for the amount of things that De Valera have said that contradict each other, that it's very hard to get a handle on. Like, was he was he sort of a was he sort of a political strategist who really rode with the, the, the mood and the moment of the day without a sense of like he himself might have known where he was trying to go, but that it's not clear from what he said publicly. I think one thing you've got to remember, De Valera wasn't really a politician. I mean, he'd never taken an interest in Sinn Féin. I'm not even sure he was in it until he was made president, you know, or certainly shortly before <laughs> that. Um, he was buoyed to victory, if you like, in Clare. Mm. Uh, and then he's gone for most of the War of Independence to the United States. Yeah. Um, he, he's less, he is a shorter amount of time pre actual president of Doyle Aaron um, than, than Griffith is, even before Griffith officially replaces him, because Griffith was his deputy and actually has been in the post longer than De Valera by, by the end of 1921. So he was not an astute politician, but he had some kind of charisma that mesmerized people uh, and it made it very hard to understand him. And yes, when the truce came about um, in July 1921, De Valera went over to London immediately. He brought a, a number of his ministers with him, including Griffith, but he left them all sitting outside the door. And I, I find it very odd the way the, the texture of the whole popular memory of the period gets woven because you hear the statement again if you're in a pub and you drink, oh, you know, Gr Griffith and Collins, they met Lloyd George on their own, you know. De Valera, as you say, met Lloyd George four times on his own, and he was pretty damn clear by the end of it all mm. exactly where the bottom line was going yeah. to be, that the British were never going to say, wash their hands entirely of Ireland and give them a republic. Mm. Um, and some people think that's why he didn't go back, actually. But I mean, again, well, exactly. Yeah. Well, exactly. I mean, that, that is what it lends itself to. There are other, there are other uh, theories as to why he didn't go back either. But even at the time of the Civil War, I mean, he, you find him by autumn 1922 saying, I was so foolish, I shouldn't have gone along with Rory O'Connor, rejection of the Doyle, you know, and he's, he's here and he's there and he's weaving his web. Um, and he's a very difficult individual to understand, but he seems to have this ability to kind of mesmerize people. And I, I, I sometimes wonder if he's, it's, he's like a bishop almost, you know, he, he says the absolute thing. The thing you must subscribe to, even if you're not going to live up to it, you know. Um, and having said that, he then does something else. But he had the capacity also to command great respect and loyalty. As I say, my own mother was, you know, admirer of Devon. Part of that came later because when Fianna Fáil was founded, they kind of moved into the social democratic area that the Labour Party had been in and began to promote policies that helped the less well off. But for this earlier period, certainly, it's extremely difficult to understand and indeed to, to like De Valera, the way he behaves. He seems to be leaving people, you know, high and dry in various directions. Um, when, when Griffith was going to London, he, 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 he claimed, he told the Doyle later before his death, um, uh, that, that uh, De Valera had said to him, you know, to, to Griffith, there may have to be scapegoats. And that and Griffith said he had replied, well, I'm prepared to be, to be that scapegoat if it, if it does the job, basically, if it gets the job done. Because Griffith, Collins, Childers and Burton, were they the, they were the four, or Barton? Yeah, Barton and uh, there, there was five, uh, five plenipotentiaries went to London uh, and uh, they were pretty much divided uh, in their um, Gavin Duffy, mm. uh, Barton, uh, Dublin, yes. uh, Collins and Griffith, you know, and and of course, the one who, who, who wasn't actually a delegate of the Doyle Plenipotentiary was Erskine Childers, who oh. was a, sec a secretary to the mm. to the 
uh, but he played a very important role because he seemed to be De Valera's man there. And there was rumors that he was, re you know, all the time in touch with De Valera back home. Uh, and De Valera does write later to one of his American supporters and basically outlines the function of Childers as having been, to, as you said, to put a check mm. on Griffith and Collins. It's as if De Valera didn't want to do a, a, an actual outcome on the ground, he, he had he seemed to have some notion that they could have come back home and he wanted to ride in on a white charger and sort of sort it out at the last minute. But seemingly they'd been over a week previous and briefed him on where they were all at. I mean, he had his opportunity. Constantly, Constantly. and the, the, it, you can now see from the records that have been released, letters were passing to him all the time. I mean, there was constant information flowing to him. He knew exactly what was going on. The notion that they were doing something kind of underhand, uh, plus, I mean, the fact that they signed it conditionally should not be forgotten. I mean, they didn't it's sign pending, the treaty. It's pending a doll. Exactly. Both. It wasn't a they, were, they didn't sign the treaty. In fact, even that expression is misleading. Mm. They signed an agreement for a treaty subject to, to approval, approval by, by the cabinet. And which, by the which it received. Which it received. So, I mean, the Doyle and the cabinet could have said no. And indeed, this is why I find it difficult later on, because they all signed it, all five of them. Later, kind of, there was a couple of them were saying, oh, you know, we before we felt we had to. They all felt they had to. Mm. You know, I mean, they all are grown up boys. They all signed it. Nobody, you know, anybody who put their name to it. It reminds me of, of, of listening to the British coverage of the guys, the football team now out in Qatar, you know, saying the, they were forced by FIFA not to wear the armbands. You know, they're big boys, you know, nobody has to do it. And the people in London, they did it, they signed it. And I think they, they, anybody would have to sign it in circumstances. I mean, if you were in London and, the, and you were being threatened without right war immediately. The next you morning. The leader with you. The next morning. And you hadn't got your leader with you. Uh, and you had the option of either risking that are signing a conditional document that said you had to go back and ask for permission, you'd sign the conditional document. And actually, I think from a previous chat, it, there was a, the suggestion was, was that the briefing that had occurred previously was on a couple of matters that had been arranged. So effectively what they signed had been effectively pre-approved on some level. In other words, like there was a few little intricacies that they had gone back with and they had been moved around as best as they could be. Anyway, I... Well, the trouble was Tevalera never made it clear in the, you know, what he wanted. That was part of the problem. I mentioned earlier about, you know, the line from Waterford to Limerick, below, below which the, the, the anti-treaty IRA continued their, their, their conflict. To, to what end, what strategy, what vision? You mentioned there were different ones. But equally, you know, just to, to roll that back, because like, you know, I mean, I've, you know, 1916, was it to reawaken a spirit that had, had lain dormant for Irish uh, independence, which it uh, achieved through whatever measures. The War of Independence, though, that broke out, you know, people fighting in that, again, probably people had different views and visions of what it might be, but what could anyone have hoped to have expected from the War of Independence? You know, that idea of like, this isn't what we fought for, but what we fought for was arguably never achievable. And, and anyone with any pragmatic, you know, and then again, you know, people died. I mean, there was a lot invested in it, but I suppose, I suppose what I'm saying is, what could anyone who had fought for Irish independence really have hoped to achieve? And again, in that, just to tie it in, is that there never seems to be a conversation, but what do we do with the North or what, where does that come in? Like, how do we manage to get a, a rump of a million odd unionists to agree with our views on the island of Ireland? 
Well, there, there, were, there was some discussion, but the bottom line was always going to be they weren't coming in one way or the other. Um, now, there's an oddity in all of this, in that under the treaty, um, actually, the Irish Free State is theoretically at one level, a 32-county unit. But within that, the Northern Ireland uh, has the right to opt out. Yes. And they do that, of course, immediately. They have six months, but they actually do it the next day. And in December, or two days later, I think it was, in December 1922, they opt out. But that was partly as a result of Griffith and Collins, uh, you know, pressing Lloyd George to give some kind of a commitment to the idea of an old Ireland unit, you know. Um, but yes. they were never going to opt into a, a republic or into even a free state. But so what people were fighting for was never really achievable. I sort of just wonder, you know, what did anyone kind of hope? Like, this is our best case. Best case scenario is a is a, an indivisible Ireland that's a republic completely separate. I also think it's remarkable when the empire, as we spoke of earlier, was at its zenith post-World War One that Ireland in any fashion managed to wrestle itself away um, from the embrace of the United Kingdom. I mean, it was, it was, a, it was a huge achievement and an yeah. unlikely one, really. Well, you see, I think there's something here. It's, again, another thing. This is, I, I really enjoy writing these books because it's made me come face to face with a number of facts, like the de Valera speech you spoke about, like the question of whether they signed the treaty. No, they didn't. They signed an agreement. Conditional, uh, agreement. But the other big thing is, I think that it's overlooked, is the 1918 general election. That was a game changer, not just the War of Independence. Mm, it changed yes, everything yes. because suddenly you had a democratic mandate that was crystal clear in, an, in a very enlarged franchise where some, many women now had the vote, many poorer people had the vote. Uh, and once Sinn Féin swept to power democratically in 1918, it absolutely changed everything. It gave a moral authority to the whole struggle, to the, to the armed struggle, the War of Independence, um, that, was, that was much more powerful than the weapons that the IRA had in its own way. The British couldn't gainsay it. They might have managed to beat the military uprising, but here they were in a post-war situation, post-World War situation where small countries were getting their freedom. Ireland had made it clear there was a majority now in favour. And no matter what happened after that, there was no going back for the British. Mm. And yet, although there is a democratic mandate and a majority, it's the, you know, there's a gerrymandering goes on, if you like, in that they, they draw a line and they go, well, this lot in there actually aren't part of that. I mean, yeah. you know, you know, that, that, and, and, and that was, that partition happened prior to that. But when the free state was created, it was created as a 32 one and Northern Ireland opted out of it. Notionally it was, yeah. I mean, everybody knew the reality on the ground, but yes. it was, I mean, they had to opt out. Had they not opted out, uh, by sending their opinion to the king within two days, then they would have been part of the Irish Free State. Uh, and there were, I mean, many unionists were very disappointed. Carson was bitterly disappointed that Ireland was divided. I mean, they regarded Ireland. Ireland had never been two states, and they, they saw themselves moving between, Carson was a Dubliner, and they saw themselves moving between the institutions in Dublin and Northern Ireland. So they weren't happy either from their own perspective that Ireland was being divided. Well, Southern unionists were 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 left stranded and northern nationalists were left stranded and we live in that um world today it's 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 history is is not the past it is we live it right now i mean you know some of the you know little sort of dots that you can connect back that i find interesting i mean you know pierce's oration at, at o'donovan ross's uh graveside you know clark saying you know bring bring him back uh, upon hearing of O'Donovan Ross's passing in, in the United States and, uh, you know, O'Donovan Ross having a, a living memory of the famine and, and, and 
being what occurred and no doubt, you know, very much an influential factor in his political outlook. Uh, and, um, and, and he as well, and some of those, um, you know, Fenians, uh, meeting some of the generals in, are, are there some, it's a, it's a book about the, the you know, the, um, the foundation of the Phoenix in Skibbereen in, in, in that sort of 1850s, 60s period. And, and some of them meeting in Paris, one of the generals of 1798, you know, and you can kind of connect 1798 to, to that Fenian uprising to, to, it doesn't take many hopscotches to bring us right back. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and here we still are today with, with, you know, a divided island and that conversation, it, 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 it's not gone away to, you know, poorly paraphrase that uh, Jerry Adams 1995 or six comment and potentially Sinn Féin, the biggest party in, in both parts of the island in the in the near future. Where are we going? Where, where are we at? Where, you know, the, the issue is not resolved and then, and there are still no easy avenues. I'm not necessarily asking you, Colin, to come up no, with the no. answer for well, that. It's, it's, but yeah. can, have we the capacity to create a united island which is how I like to phrase it. Well, I'd like to think we have my own um, great grandfather was uh, a Fenian. He was in the Fenians. He was out in 1867 in Dublin. Um, my grandfather worked with Patrick Pierce and Arthur Griffith commercially to help them in their uh, publications. Um, you know, there's, there are different traditions that draw on um, on those strengths that, you know, I don't see the current Sinn Féin or somehow having a exclusive, you know, continuity at all. I mean, most mm -hmm. of Sinn Féin was dem became a democratic force. And indeed, Griffith, when he created, when he founded Sinn Féin, he, he regarded it as a movement rather than a political party. It, it drew together people with somewhat different points of view, mm -hmm. uh, which was to be reflected throughout the struggle, if you like, after that. Uh, and so the main strength of that tradition is democratic and, and is, you know, reconciliatory. It's, it'll work at getting things right. I do think we have the capacity. Yes, I do. I think but we have to approach it carefully. We have to learn from the Civil War and this period that trying to force things, trying to take absolute purist stands, maybe very self-satisfying, maybe heroic. And there's a whole other tradition of heroic failure in Ireland, which has been, you know, isn't a great one it doesn't necessarily get you anywhere in the end of the day it can make matters worse and that's what i would be afraid of i think we need to go softly softly and negotiate things and and advance in real terms like we did between 1922 when we got our independence and 1949 when we become a republic it was done gradually and it was all the more successful for that because it was built up and consolidated as, as it went and it's likely to be a reconstituted country it, it it, it won't be that we just take six counties into what we are. I think both will need to be a new thing and an agreed thing on an island, a small island. It must be possible for, you know, those of us that live on this island and though many uh, from other parts of the world now making up a sizable proportion of our population to be able to constitute a country in which we can all live in uh, collectively. I think we'd be all the better for it as a country. I certainly look forward to that day, but it, it doesn't seem to be, um, it seems it still seems far off. I look back. I look at the people. I mean, look at the the Hale brothers, Sean Hale and Tom, but on different sides in the Civil War. Both highly, you know, committed individuals. People of great moral strength in their own right. You know, now I would disagree with Tom, who was at Blah among the people who shot dead Michael Collins. I think he made the wrong decision. Uh, but these are people, you know, who thought seriously about this island and wanted to make something of it. 
uh, even Liam Lynch, who was, you know, kind of very extreme in his own way. Um, when I say I think they made a mistake and they were wrong, it doesn't mean I disrespect them. I just think, you know, looking at the way things developed, it wasn't the best way to go forward if you wanted a united Ireland. We have to learn from that. And we have, you know, we have to make very conscious decisions. And as you say, there's no reason we can make those. We, we have a lot of ability and I would hope that the, you know, we can persuade um, but we're slow enough to do it, and it's not helped by singing songs like Up the Ra, that's for sure, as if it was all one long, glorious struggle, uh, you know, to get, get a certain type of person off the island. I mean, we aren't, we ourselves aren't, aren't necessarily who we think we are. We're not a monocultural type of people. We get our pleasures from watching British football, from watching American movies, you know, yeah, and, and also, of course, from speaking Irish and, you know, going to England on holidays and all that kind of stuff. So we're complex too, and we've got to be careful not to fall back into that very narrow, you know, definition in that of which we can then become a prisoner if we yes. do that and how we relate to the other and the other in this case being the unionists in Northern Ireland. Mm. But there needs to be some level of willingness on that. And that's what I find interesting in, in, in all of these conversations is how little, uh, sorry, I don't mean that as any criticism of the yeah. book. I mean, in a general sense, when we discuss Irish history and matters and occurrences, there still seems to be a vacuum around unionists and unionism. I mean, maybe it's just that the likes of myself, I'm not drawn to read that sort of material, but maybe there needs to be a sort of a, a looking from both sides at the motivations and the thinkings and the and the, a, 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 to assist in the understandings um, to bring us a little forward. And, and even in, in British thinking, maybe that's more understandable um, as to why that is. But, um, you know, we, we, we were good at looking in on ourselves and maybe not looking at a, at a, at a wider perspective. I'm conscious that your time might be coming to an end in, in our conversation column, and I'm, I'm very grateful for it. Um, very clear and concise, really, you know, I, for me, you know, it, it is a little bit of a quagmire of a period in, in our history and less spoken about uh, and, and, and more passed over for all of the reasons that we are, are obvious, I guess, in terms of the bitternesses and the difficulties and the, 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 the hard way to, to know what to think about it. And I take your point on, 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 you know, the likes of Humphreys and, and her quotes in your in, in the preview, as, as you mentioned earlier, you know, you can kind of see why in a public forum they probably just want to go, oh, we do, like even still, even 100 years on, they're reluctant to to spike anyone. And, and yet I guess what your point is, well, they should. I mean, it's it's clear to say that the Irish Civil War shouldn't have happened. It didn't do the nascent Irish state any good. It didn't help a desire for a united Ireland particularly. And it left a legacy of bitterness that took 40, 50 years to wipe out and our politics still polluted by it is perhaps a strong term, but but for a long period. Um, you know, hard to really, I, is there anyone that argues that the Irish Civil War was a good thing or a necessary thing? Because to what, to what good end? Uh, well, that's a great question. Not in as many words, I think. Very few, you know, would certainly argue that. Um, but yet there's a kind of a justification. There's a my side, your side still. And that's why when people tell me, you know, oh, it's all behind us, we've left civil war politics behind. And in some ways we have, what we saw this year in Bain and the Blah, you know, was very admirable in its own way. Although, you know, um, there was an element of the old thing of, you know, if we, we've got to hang together, because if we don't all hang together, we'll hang separately with Fianna Foy and Fianna Gay looking mm. over her shoulder. Yes. Sinn Féin. Yes. Um, 
you'd worry that, you know, we don't change as quickly uh, as we think we do. Do we really understand? I mean, supposing somebody suggested the 12th of July was a national holiday in the Republic to honour the Protestant tradition and the, you know, because in fact, King William probably was more liberal than King James and yeah. brought freedoms of a certain kind. Yeah. But, you know, we our gut instinct to say, are you crazy? You know, there was, they were, no way, you know. Uh, and it's those visceral responses, you know, that I fear that it becomes tribal we don't want that at a certain level we want to go ahead we want the best for everybody but we slip back into saying it's the fellow on the other side's forward you know um certainly the the unionist one would hope will want to do some kind of business with us but the business means give as well as take we can't sit down you know and my fear is if there's a border poll and if supposing it got passed on purely counting the number of Catholic babies against Protestant babies, kind of a head count. And, it, you know, even if all the, I mean, there's a big question mark as to whether Northern Catholics would all vote for, but let's say they did. Okay, now you'd have a majority in Northern Ireland wanted, uh, wanted the United Ireland. But that's not entirely the issue, is it? You need to have a majority. You need to have, you know, a substantial. It's got to be an agreed, an agreed island. Yeah, absolutely. It's not just a numeric majority. And that, that is where I fear the tensions could come to the fore again. And so we have to be clear about what happened during this period and understand exactly what happened and the dangers of things recurring that happened then in terms of the emotion taking over. Can I just ask finally, a bitter, a bitter winter of the Irish Civil War, 22 to 23, Colin Kenny, and thank you for your conversation. You used a Yeats poem to separate the sections, which is lovely. Um, yeah, Meditation and Dime Civil War, yeah. Um, and 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 I think that it works very effectively. I, in a way, I I, I love the conversation we had. I, I almost wish I delved a little more into how you broke the book up and looked at the, maybe the different sections. But perhaps that's um, for 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 those inspired to. Yeah, the, this book and the book last year, um, I, I I got the idea for doing books like this from a French book on a meeting that Hitler had with industrialists in Germany just before the Second World War called Order, The Order of the Day by Eric Viard, that won the Prix Goncourt. Um, now, in his case, it's categorized as fiction because he imagined conversations that didn't take place, but it was his focus on trying to take crucial points like the night of the treaty are you know specific issues that were involved and I thought you don't have to write a very long book I think there are too many long books at the mm. moment ways lacking editorship you can write a short book to focus and then if people are really interested beyond that there are some very good in-depth monographs that study particular aspects of the issue yes. I wanted to make this accessible for everybody so we'd be having the kind of conversation you're kind enough to have tonight yes uh, and, it, and it does that very effectively and that's because it, it is clear and concise and, and 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 short. I mean, it's 128 pages. I read it in a couple of days. Um, and it and, and it has all you know, Collins at Bell Nablaw, uh, Devil Air, I was so foolish as you referenced, uh, the orders of frightfulness, uh, Childers executed. There's um, you know, all Harry Boland shot, the, the Bally CD slaughter, you know, all of the things that you might vaguely have heard of and know was a thing and you know here it is what happened where and, and what was said and broken into spring summer autumn winter and finally spring of 1923 and from there the new Irish state hobbled to some degree and began to try to recover um, and it can't have been an easy task it can't have been an easy task and then those who lost the civil war ended up taking power some seven years later some eight years later 
Remarkable. Colm Kenny, thank you very much. Really appreciate your time and, and being a part of this Cork History Matters podcast. Actually, we didn't even reference too much of Cork, but Mary McSweeney, I did want to reference in this at, at some point. She was trenchantly anti-treaty, as were most of the uh, significant female political figures like Constant Markievicz. But all bar one of the of the six major figures lost their seat in the uh, in the election, again, showing where where the, the sentiment of the public was. Yeah, and uh, I, I, I do reproduce, I, I found in the National Library a very nice little badge honouring uh, the anti-treaty area chief of staff, Liam Lynch, um, with a quotation under it. I don't know where the quotation came from, but there was, it certainly wasn't from him because it's posthumous, but he said, would to God that English dogs had tracked me down rather than my old comrades. And it kind of sums up the sadness of all of that and the bitterness of Bally City. I don't pretend they weren't right wrongs uh, on the free state oh, side no. and excesses there certainly were um, but the bottom line is where we started i'll end by saying that the bottom line is there was a democratic commitment to a new state and nothing trumps that i mean that was the ultimate uh right it was the right to the people to be wrong i mean devil airs are the people have no right to be wrong well they have a right to be wrong if they were wrong they have a right to make up their own mind and they did it in this case and that's where i think the judgment has to come down on the side of the people who voted and they voted to support the treaty and i noted your point too because collins collins on the cover uh, lying um in in state uh in repose uh, after his murder uh painted by john lavery uh who unusually uh, to take your words uh, added an inscription which you feel almost answers the question asked by Yeats uh, in the poem that runs through the book, um, Love of Ireland, uh, a complicated thing that caused many to do many things and it's much of a documented in this. Colm Kenny, thank you very much. For more Red FM podcasts, go to redfm.ie forward slash podcasts.